as long as each partner, no matter what the contract says, no matter what the agreements are, if each person is attempting or feels like they're giving 51% back to the partnership, that means internally you feel like you're doing more for the partnership than you're obligated to do or whatever. That If each partner's doing that, then it's a win-win, right? But the minute one partner is doing 51% and the other partner's like doing 30%, right, of whatever the obligations are, then that's where resentment starts to build. So that is all about how committed people are, how they feel about what they're doing, like how much work are you putting in, how much emphasis, the thought of the business. And so I think if you just look around, it's not that Chris and I are doing the same thing every day, but there's no doubt about the output of what we're doing. I mean, like the output that you're doing, just look around, we're sitting here having the 300th episode (laughs) of a podcast. That doesn't happen by doing nothing. I love this company, not just because of what they do, uh, but two of my best friends run it, Nick Huber and Mitchell Baldridge. It's called Ari Koseg, and they have a singular mission to help real estate investors spend less money on taxes. If you're an investor, a broker, or a property owner, listen up. This is crucial information. A cost segregation study can help you unlock the hidden value in your property by enabling you to write off components of your building faster. This means you'll pay less in taxes and have more cash in your pocket to reinvest or distribute to your investors. The team at RE Cosseg are experts in this highly specialized field. They only use engineers to perform their studies and they use the highest industry standards for their reports. Over the past year, they've completed over 600 Cosseg studies and have saved their clients more than 65 million in taxes. For smaller properties, they do site visits fully virtually, which makes it extremely fast and easy to get your Cosseg completed. They also have an experienced team for larger in-person site visits. Big or small, they make it extremely quick and easy. And the best part, their initial analysis is absolutely free. They'll examine your property and show you how much you could be saving. Visit recostseg, that's R-E-C-O-S-T-S-E-G.com. I've been really excited and it has been cool to watch this company better pitch. They are the experts in private equity deck design. Whether you need a fundraising deck, a corporate overview and track record deck, or investor reporting collateral, they have you covered. Better Pitch is experienced putting together pitch decks for raises as small as a million and as large as half a billion. The best part? Better Pitch completes all design, copywriting, and market research. That's right. They pull all data both on an asset and market level and illustrate the research to support your investment thesis. Your days of moonlighting as a designer and analyst are over. Better Pitch is the plug-and-play option to deliver an institutional quality pitch deck that leads to a more effective fundraise. You send your raw deal documents, they design, provide market research, and refine your copywriting. And the best part? They deliver the final product in a PowerPoint file for you to use on future deals. Better Pitch is extending a risk-free offer exclusively for the Fort Podcast listeners. They will work with you until you're 100% satisfied, accommodating as many revisions as you need. Visit betterpitch.com. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-P-I-T-C-H.com to schedule your call today. Hey guys, if you're not following Fort Capital on LinkedIn, I would. In a prior ad, I talked about our newsletter, but LinkedIn is just as good, except these are in real time. We post weekly, sometimes daily. We talk about career opportunities, information on our latest acquisitions and dispositions, updates across the Fort team, 
our latest real estate focused podcast episodes, our most recent content pieces. Stay up to date with the number one fastest growing private real estate company in Texas by following Fort Capital on LinkedIn. Jason, welcome. Thank you for the hundredth time. Maybe not. Maybe like 10. Probably. I feel like it's been a lot. It has been a lot. You've been uh, a great guest. You've been the guest that started this whole podcast. Really? We did the first one? The first one. Wow. And that was December of 2018. Wow. And so if you're listening to this, it might be fun to go listen to that. (laughs) I don't Um, know. (laughs) We were idiots then. Maybe we're just less idiots now, but. (laughs) Yeah. Probably not that fun. (laughs) But it's been almost five years. We're now on episode 300. And when they asked me who would I want to do episode 300 with, I was like, Jason, have to to do it with Jason. So, Well, congratulations on 300. That's pretty impressive. Thank you. Yeah, it's been fun. I don't think we... I certainly didn't know it was going to happen with this thing. Yeah. I mean, I think we talked about it a ton early on, just about the what it could do and how amazing it would be and all that. But the the challenging part to me is how do you stay consistent? How do you continue to find entertaining guests, interesting guests? And so you deserve a ton of credit for not just keep it going, but to also find really, really uh, amazing people to talk to. Well, you've, you've helped me through my lows because when you do do 300 episodes, there are times where you're like, Man, I don't know if I can do another episode. And you've continued to keep it positive, and I'm I'm happy to say I love doing it m- as much today as I did back then. I probably love it more. Um, yeah. Well, you've definitely gotten really, really good at it. I appreciate it. Yeah. Today we'll talk about partnership stuff. So basically, I put a tweet out to anybody listening to this and got a ton of great feedback and questions. Some things we've talked about before, but it's just a refresher. But a lot of this is just kind of new stuff. And so we'll just kind of chip off the block and see where it goes. We'll do partnership. We'll talk about some things about Fort. We can talk about our tech and then maybe some personal questions at the end. Perfect. All right. Question one, where you complement each other and where you clash deadlock breaking process and how do you each deal with conflict? What comes to mind? Well, what, what comes to mind to you? (laughs) I think part of starting a partnership, so let's just start with a partnership. I I said this in the the tweets. I feel like I hit the partner lottery. I hope you feel the same. Same. But that doesn't mean every, it's like getting married. It's like every day is just a hundred. Yeah. But what we've learned over a long period of time is how to complement each other and how to deal with clash. I would say at the beginning when we partnered, it was like, okay, we in my eyes is like we kind of see the world the same we were both super ambitious we liked each other we trusted each other and i think what was really beneficial to our partnership starting was we had worked together on the other side of the table before yeah for at least a a period of time yeah and we office together we it was always in the spirit of partnership but it was also we didn't write anything on paper yet. We just said, let's office together. We'll do deals. They'll be structured like partners. But if in a year or two, we realize like this isn't going to work, it's like dating, right. it'll be a clean breakup. Yep. And that was a huge advantage. I think some people, they're like, hey, you want to be my partner? Yeah, I want to be my partner. We got nothing to split up. We'll each take whatever and we'll get going. And then like a year later, they're like, what did I do? Yeah. And then when conflict happens, it's more of like a, a decision. Do I want to do this anymore? 
I've had enough of this. And a lot of partnerships just end. And so I don't think that, like you kind of were just touching on this. It's not how do we deal with conflict and what was the other part of the question? Yeah. How do we compliment each other and how do we deal with yeah. conflict? That's an evolution, yeah. right? So the key is like, what was the foundation when it started? When I think of that question, because it's not like it started and it's just been magical, yeah. right? That's not how any partnership, relationship, anything ever works. But I think we're fortunate in the sense of where, how your career started very early entrepreneur, all the things that you had done to build experience and grow were, com- even though super valuable and way more valuable than some of the things I had ever done because I hadn't had that opportunity, but totally different than the way I had done. Yeah. But we sort of ended, or when we met, we were sort of, I was in a place that said, I want to go back to just being fully entrepreneurial, run, yeah. take this and you know whatever ideas we come up with and run with it. You were already there. But where I had had the fortune and sort of the way my life turned out early on was that I went down a more traditional path of learning a lot of things. So that compliment of like, I didn't have all the entrepreneurial risk taking structure built into how I did my day to day, but you did. Yeah. What I had was all the business operational orientation of like what we need to do to accomplish something from a very specific way to do it. Right. And I and think that combination sort of led us on a great start. It did. Yeah. And and to be fair, it's like, I didn't know what I didn't know. You yeah. knew you knew a lot about how companies look as they get bigger. Right. I remember like you'd say like, hey, we probably need to like do this. And I'd be like, no, we just <laughs> need to like do deals. Culture will just happen. Teams will just build themselves. People will just manage themselves. That was like early, early I'll on. T- can I tell one funny story? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we officed in a little office building. It was actually a really cool office building, but we officed there and and I just, we weren't partners yet, but I just moved in and started officing with Chris and a couple of other people. And Chris would get there really early in the morning, sometimes earlier than me, but we got there really early to meet one morning. I think it was like seven o'clock in the morning (laughs) and, uh, which is early for me. Uh And we were talking about hiring and money and making money. And we were, I think we were working on a deal at the time and I was explaining to you. And I think this is when we were actually uh, considering hiring Shana. Okay. And, uh, but we were talking about hiring and the need. And I was explaining to you the need to bring somebody else on, not just Shana, but other people or whoever we were talking about at the time. And you were like, yeah, but I mean, how do we pay for them? Like, (laughs) and not necessarily like not understanding how, but meaning like, why would I do that? I make so much money doing this. And right. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, but how much money do you pay in taxes? Yeah. And you were like, well, but what is not, what does that matter? But it was more, it wasn't that you couldn't figure that out. It was more of just where you were as an entrepreneur looking at it as like, I'm capable of doing this. I can do all this and look how much money I make. Yeah. That's great. You're just not scalable. You as an individual. And the way I just looked at that is like, if you shift that mentality at the time, And that's sort of how I saw if I had to do it on my own. So I was really just speaking for myself in terms of, well, if I'm going to do this on my own, I'm no, I've got to commit to investing money in people so I can scale myself. And so I just use the tax analogy to say, how much taxes are you going to pay this year? And you as an individual were making pretty good money that year. And it was X. And I said, well, you realize if you paid an employee that that's less taxes you're going to pay. So you can either pay the IRS. Yeah. Or you can hire people. It's still going to cost you a little more, but it's not as much as you think. Right. And that's where a lot of people get 
caught up is if they're an individual making a lot of money, they can keep doing that. It's just a choice. But if you want to scale, you just have to change your mindset. So I thought that was funny at the time because it was shortly after that. Then it was like higher, 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 higher. <laughs> and next thing you know, we looked up like two years later, we had like 25 people. I think, okay, so this is where we complement each other. That's a perfect antidote to, I can tend to believe in something or see the vision of it, of what it needs. Uh, like I quickly get to like the end goal. Yeah. And then I can sometimes start acting as if that end goal is like in place. Yeah. This is where we complement each other. And this is another question about how you and I talk about the future. We love talking about the future. What's happened over time is we've started to realize what's reality and what's just like fun to talk about. But where Jason compliments me, this is one where is he's always keeping me grounded in or you're always I'm talking to you in the third person. You're <laughs> like saying, I'm right? not sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> Keeps me grounded in that's all great, but we have something we gotta do today. And tomorrow and the next day and really framing it as like, we can get to exactly what you just said, but there's like a million steps that have to happen in between. Right. And where I needed to be complimented and where I've learned over time. And that's just part of maturing was I would tend to just leap out five years and then really judge everything happening at that point in time based on why we're not there. Why we're not, what, what if we were there, if, yeah, in five years, this is what it'll look like. So I judged everything against that rather than judging everything as how are we building towards that. Right. And it, that's, it's just being able to take a long term mindset, like a, a, it's a long game and, and that's all of life. But business is the best analogy for that in terms of you got to do all the things necessary if you really want to do it. And what everybody wants to do in business is just go make money. Yeah. That it's not that money's the byproduct. And we talk about this in other aspects of our business, but it's the byproduct. It's just like all the success we have. It's just the byproduct, but it's what you do today. And I'm not naturally a today person. So one thing that Chris and I also learned throughout the years was to get better at understanding each other and our team and our people by using tools. And we've talked about things like culture index in the past, but to really understand yourself and understand where your strengths and weaknesses are and and I don't even really look at them as weaknesses. It's the things that I, it's not who I'm inherent, who I am inherently, and that's okay. But as long as I'm aware of it, I don't care if it's a weakness or not. I just have to be aware right. so that when I'm making that decision, I go, oh yeah, that's part of why I'm making that decision. I don't naturally do that. Right. right. And so instead of trying to get really good at focusing on today, what I do is just understand that it's natural for me to jump to the future and then go, I really want that. And then just ask myself, okay, well, what is it going to take? Like, yeah. what's it really going to take? And then if you start backing into it, you realize, oh, okay, well, if we do this, we got to do that. We got to do that. And that's where we are slightly different, but that's where the value comes in. Because sometimes I will get caught up in the execution of getting that done. And you're always envisioning like what could be next. Yeah. And even though I tend to do that, I, I often fall into that uh, sort of pattern of but we got so much to do. Yep. Right. And uh, it's it's a balance. You got to do both. And so I think that's where we definitely complement each other. Like we said, we're both ambitious. I'd say another complimentary is, and, and maybe you could describe it from your point of view, but 
and I think again, it goes back to the word trust, like in, in, in even dealing with conflict is like, if there's just an embedded level of trust and trust doesn't mean you're going to agree on everything. It means that everybody's showing up for the right reasons and making the best decisions with what they know. And so it's not like we agree on everything. There's things we don't necessarily always agree on, but one thing that we complement each other with, I think it's probably because it's both of our natures is like, we're not afraid to kind of tell each other this is what you did, or this is what I'm thinking. This is how I'm looking at the situation. Honesty. It's it's not always like the most comfortable, but over time you go through it enough. And for me anyway, it's like, look, he doesn't want the worst for me. He's telling me whatever he wants to tell me, but it's not because he doesn't like me or it's personal or same or vice versa. Totally. So it starts there. But I think we do have, and as time's gone by, we have pretty open, candid conversations. Now, also, I would say after However long it's been, how long is it? Eight, oh, we'll call it eight years. 2015 is when we first kind of started working together. Mm-hmm. But your lanes get more defined and you, there's just stuff you're doing that maybe I used to think I had an opinion on or that's my place to say something. Like over time, as the lanes get- You learn. You yeah. learn. It's like, there's only a few things that are going on that we're often like, okay, here's something that I thought or here's something you thought that we're in conflict on. Usually- yeah, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but over time, it feels to me like we've gotten in such lanes that. 100%. And I mean, that's, that has probably been the most big, or what I would say is the biggest change in the evolution of how we got to where we are today is going from, we have to do everything together. We're working together. We're sort of tackling things together. We're just like figuring it out. And um, you sometimes trying to make a decision and me trying to say, well, no, I don't agree with that. That's where you can kind of create conflict as opposed to saying, well, wait, what are your strengths? What are yeah. you, what do you want to be doing every day? Cause that's really the most important thing. It's not really about how do we get where we're going? And like, I think I should make these decisions. You first just say, well, what do you want to be doing every day? Yeah. And you come in like, what is you, cause if you say, well, I don't want to be sitting in that meeting. Well, then you can't have an opinion in that meeting. And yeah. same for me, right? So I do this with the team all the time. Like I can't have an opinion. I can have an opinion, but I can't go into that meeting and inject that opinion yep. if I'm not willing to actually take ownership of that situation. And so I think over the years, we've just gotten really good at identifying it's really not my place, yeah. right? And I think then we become supportive as opposed to saying, well, I don't think we should do that, right? It's like you, we can ask questions. And that's where you, I think what you're alluding to is the honesty there of saying, well, I just think I really have a strong feeling about this or a strong opinion about this. And I think we both feel free to do that all the time. And I think we have no problem having challenging or like what most people would think is confrontational conversations. They don't, they probably don't feel like that to you and me because we're just used to it. (laughs) Um, But I'm sure if somebody was observing it, they were probably like, well, they're disagreeing and I don't like brothers. I don't really feel like it's a disagreement. I feel like we're just like coming to a conclusion. And so, but I think that's super valuable because I don't, I think a lot of people get into the, especially to men often. And I think the way, if I just sum it up is I think we've gotten really good at, for the most part, leaving our egos out of like trying to get to what the right thing to do, the best decision, the impact, where we're going, the excitement, the future, all that stuff. And just treating it for what it is and not like interjecting like our ego and like, I got to be right. And a lot of that, like we have a lot to steward now. We have an amazing team. Huge responsibility. We have lots of assets. We have lots of relationships. I mean, like this, there's that book, Ego is the Enemy, but that is like the, that is the worst possible way to ever run a business. Yeah. 
because I mean, it's it's who we. It, everybody has a part of the ego is going to drive some decision or feelings, but you just same thing. You just got to be aware of it. Keep it down. And the other, the only other thing that comes to mind is like when you first partner with someone, it's like exciting. We're like oh, yeah. in this. We're going to meetings together. We're just going to talk all day, every day about everything. Yeah. And you and I would stay at the office till eight or nine at night. Saturdays, Sundays. And people are like, what are y'all doing? And looking back, a lot of times it was like everybody was gone. And then you and I would just talk for hours about just different stuff. And there's so much great that comes out of that. Yeah. But then over time, you just realize we were just like creating more ideas. Like it was just like it becomes I- a bad idea day yeah. every day. So that's part of the evolution of a business. So that I look at that as like, that's, that's part of the building phase. You got to do that work. It's not like we were making mistakes. It's what got us where we are. So I look at everything as for sure. It, it happened exactly the way it was supposed to. And it, and it evolves. It's more just saying like what worked at five, six, seven people partnership just doesn't work at a partnership of this. You can't almost get to where we're at if you continue that forever. Right. 100%. What are the biggest upside downside to having a partnership? We kind of just, I think we talked a lot about the upside. I've really thought about the downside as much. Honestly, I mean, I, I'm sure you. We, you, anybody could come up with a downside of right. having a partner. Like, yeah, if I didn't, if Chris wasn't here, I'd make more money. Mm-hmm. Well, if Chris wasn't here, I might not make any money. Yeah. And it's vice thing. versa. And so there's always, you can take a downside and just spin it the other way. And I, I think the downside of having a partner is if it's not working, you got to recognize that and realize that it's holding each other back. Yeah. But if it's a good partnership and things are working really well and look at all the success we've had, it's really hard to say what's the downside. I agree. Because I, I cho- and I think this is a choice. I think this goes to like uh, how you view everything you do. It's an attitude, right? Is uh, I choose to view our situation, this company, the decisions we made. None of it would have happened if we wouldn't, if we hadn't made these decisions. At any point, we could have said, "Yeah, I'm going to go do my own thing," or yeah. "You're going, I'm going to go." That's great, but what would have happened? My my belief is it wouldn't have been as good as it is now. I agree, and so I say that what we're doing is the best thing we could have done. I think we hold each other accountable. Yeah. We naturally push each other. Just, it's like osmosis. It's yeah, just, it's you're, you're, you're constantly point. pushing each other. And I agree on the downside. Like, I've never really thought of it as a downside. The downside would be like what you said is like, it's not working and it's hard to untangle at some point. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a, an important part to be honest with about, which I think we've done, but we haven't had to do it like in, in like an intentional, like, well, if you're not happy type of thing, but. <laughs> I think it's been obvious, like if it wasn't working, I think we would know. And I think we would be mutual about like, what should we do? For sure. Right. And and I don't even know if that's never even been an issue, but if it was, I just feel like there would be an obvious solution for sure. Whatever that looks like, whatever good or bad, it doesn't matter. There would be an obvious solution. And there's been moments. Well, one, I think again, a healthy partnership is in, in bringing like Zach into it. Like we talk about our partnership annually. Yeah. Sometimes we adjust how it works. Sometimes we adjust who's doing what or how we're incentive or whatever it may. Because things change. Because things change. Yeah. And so I would say, it may not answer this question directly, but if you're not looking at your partnership through a fresh lens of where you are in that moment periodically throughout time, right? That's that's that could lead to downside resentment, um, yeah. things of that nature. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Then the con, and I think we've always done a good job and just. I will take some credit for this because I think it's just who I am naturally is. And I, you're the same way though. We put a lot of trust in, yes, we we document things. Yes, we have agreements that are in place, but we don't hang our hat on those in any way where we're like holding them over each other or 
I've never, we've never gone back to a document and said, well, wait, <laughs> I don't even know where they are. Right. I mean, we, so when he says we talk, <laughs> when we talk about them, what we do is we use that as an opportunity to make sure we're on the same page. Yep. And then yes, Zach, our attorney gets to get paid because he gets to spend <laughs> Zach. six months updating them. Uh, <laughs> if you can't tell that's a dig on Zach, but, and, and I'm joking, but I, I think that that we haven't ever thought of having those agreements in place as any sort of negative. It's all a positive that we can get aligned and, and move forward in a positive yeah. way. And the well, only other thing I would add to that is my viewpoint on that. And I know even if you, even if you don't, and we've talked about this, but even if you don't necessarily look at how you give back to the overall situation the same way I do, I think it's the same thing because I feel it's the same way, which is as long as each partner, no matter what the contract says, no matter what the agreements are, no matter what, if each person is attempting or feels like they're giving 51% back to the partnership, that means internally you feel like you're doing more for the partnership then you're obligated to do or whatever that if each partner's doing that, then it's a win-win, right? But the minute one partner is doing 51% and the other partner's like doing 30%, right? Of whatever the obligations are, then that's where resentment starts to build. So that is all about how committed people are, how they feel about what they're doing, like how much work are you putting in, how much emphasis, the thought of the business. And so I think if you just look around, it's not that Chris and I are doing the same thing every day. But there's no doubt about the output of what we're doing, meaning like the output that you're doing, just look around, we're setting, you're having the 300 episode episode (laughs) of a podcast that doesn't happen by doing nothing, Mm -hmm. right? So the output of what we're both doing to, to make this thing go is obvious that it's full speed. And this is probably more advice just that I've recognized is like, I think partnerships start to break down if one partner starts to not necessarily take advantage, but lets off the gas pedal some. And then, then it turns to those agreements. Oh, well, we have a 50-50 partnership and you're getting, you're only doing 30% of the work, right? That's where it just becomes like resentment, right? And that's when you get to that. If you're reviewing your contract annually, it's like, well, hey, last year I did way more than you. That's a problem. That's right? a huge problem. I don't think we've ever even had to think that way because you're as driven as any human I've ever met and I try to be. And so I think as long as po- both people are putting that effort in, it's hard to. And, and just I can speak for myself like there's I appreciate it more and more over time. You're a little older than me, not a ton, but a little bit. <laughs> 10 years. But you've experienced things I haven't experienced both personally, professionally. So there's also for me anyway, I, I, maybe going back to the compliment, I just feel like I have a partner that I get to learn from. Yeah, and I think that's mutual though. But in, and I'm sure there's things that you learn from me and but I think that's a critical part of a partnership that you're interested in learning from each other over a period of time where it's not some stale, like, yeah, we just, we've been partners forever. So we're staying partners. 100%. I've really never felt like I've like tapped out of learning from you. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, a good point because not because you keep learning from me, but from if both people are putting that effort in, right, then there's always going to be something to learn because you're look, I mean, all the conversations you have, not just on the podcast, but just all the relationships being in YPO, things like that, that becomes invaluable because I don't have the time to do that. Yep. And so that's my l- view into that world. So it's always learning yep. in some way, shape or form. And it's the same thing on the business side where I'm down there in the trenches. Sometimes like we we're growing, we built the team, we're, we're making decisions. 
And then that's an opportunity like the leadership training we, we just did. Like how much value was that for even for me to have to go back through it and present it with Steve on our team? But that's an opportunity for you to see into that world and go, oh man, we're teaching all the leaders in the company this and I can learn it too. Yep. Right. So anyway, a lot of value. Okay. A couple more in partnership. And we, we, again, not to keep going back, but it was, I'd want to know how you balance keeping each other informed of the big picture, visioning ideas, thoughts, while also not freaking each other out or upsetting the apple cart, aka balance the everyday with the long-term possibilities. Well, I think we we sort of touched on how we get here, but I'll, I'll clarify in terms of the how we actually have those conversations. We meet every Monday, yeah. try to, and uh, Chris has gotten much, much better at understanding what's already going on, sort of in a broad sense, to know not how to upset the apple cart. Meaning, like he's you're you're always coming with good ideas or thoughts, or hey, where are we at with this? Where are we going with this? Or especially when it comes to the things we're working on right now, like big capital raising and things like that. Those are fruitful conversations that we're aligned on. So there's no really upsetting the apple cart. But in terms of the big picture stuff, even though I don't necessarily do that every Monday, when something is coming, like things we're talking about right now, right? Or even leadership training or stuff that I see a big, uh, not necessarily a change, but like the future, like this is what's going to happen with the company from from this standpoint. We talk about that in depth and I sort of paint the picture, then you ask questions. And then a lot of times I'll be like, man, that's a great idea. Yeah. Right. And then we incorporate or we think about it. And a lot of times it's just seeding the conversation. So it's something that I think is going to happen over the next year or two years. Right. And that sort of helps us sort of establish this common vision that we've both had a chance to sort of marinate on, throw an idea in, come back the next week. Hey, ask a question. And I would say that it's not even that intentional at this point. Like we're not sitting here thinking this. I'm just kind of reflecting on how it happens. It just is like how we communicate at this point. I'll tell you one of my favorite, I guess you call it business days of the year was last Friday that we basically had lunch for four hours. Yeah. And what started is like a normal lunch, just kind of going through a series of things became this and really just snowball into this long discussion. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but it kind of goes to what you said is like they're the Monday morning meetings, they're not as formal and stru- structured anymore, but we kind of show up knowing what we're trying to do, which is push things forward. And I appreciate you the compliment that I'm I'm not upsetting the apple cart anymore. I think years ago Well in, that was that was the meeting was like putting well, the, both of us, right? Because you would have an idea and I would just jump on board and be sure. like, oh yeah, we got to do this. And but then, I think to anybody listening to this, you might go, well, what changed? And and the several things changed, maturing, learning, all those things. But we have, to me, there's 12 that are I look at, but we have dashboards. I can mm-hmm. see the entire company. Right. So a lot for years or for probably a year, I'd ask you a question. You'd be like, have you looked at the dashboard? No. Have you looked at the dashboard? And over time, you just get trained like, I'm going to go through that whole dashboard or I'm going to look at different parts of the company that I need to see. And if there's something that is top of mind that comes out of that, I'll ask you. Right. But it's almost eliminate everything, which goes back to transparency and communication is now. Well, you're trying to, in my my view of that is, and this all goes to what this question is about, how do you stay aligned on the vision is a lot of the things are in motion and those should, you should not have to talk about on a regular basis, the things that are already naturally happening and that are performing well, that are doing what they're supposed to do, because that's not high value conversation. Right. And when you 
think about like at least the way I think about myself and having a conversation with you is I don't ever want to feel like we're just wasting our time. Meaning like we're just sitting there yeah. talking about something that isn't going to make change. Nothing's going to change <laughs> just because we talk about this. Yeah. And, and so when I think about things like that, what you're saying and why even my mind would go, well, have we looked at the dashboard yet? And, or let's, it's getting in tune with like just the facts yeah. So that we can have good fruit and we don't spend times like learning the facts. For sure. Right. And so that I'm saying that in the in in line with this question, which is if you do that, you get to a point where, as, especially as business partners, you're having mostly high value, high level conversations that are about the future and where we're going in a way that creates the alignment. The minute you get in the day to day and you think that's what two partners or founders or anything like that at that level that should be thinking about the future. If they're talking about the day-to-day in like their weekly meeting, yeah. there's a problem. Well, the other thing that I just thought of is when you know the facts, mm-hmm. when you t- you're talking about the future from a set of facts, right. when you don't know the facts and you're talking about the future, everything's possible. It's more of a dream than like a true vision. That's, it's, a, it's a delusion. It's a delusion. Not an illusion. And, it's and a delusion. don't get me wrong. Delusions are fun. <laughs> They're so fun. They just don't make money and and build companies. Well, those, um, that's what creates the conflict, and that goes back to that's what the that's the uh, that's how you get to the question that he that this person's asking is that is how the the alignment gets off. One person knows limited information or some information that they've choose to digest, and then they create a future in their mind for that, and the other person does the same thing. Yep. Right. The key is. If you both working from the same set of data, then you can, and then one person comes in to talk, you're seeing the same future. Yeah. And that's the challenge. And we've been told this. And I think this is another uh, value that we have or benefit that we've had is understanding each other's profiles from a, a true like culture standpoint, the culture, using the culture indexes. We've always known that the fact that we're both forward thinking, future driven people that there could be a divergence at some point of your future versus mine mentally, Right. You're, you're thinking this and I'm thinking this. And that's what happens when two people are trying to create a future in their mind and then execute on that. Yep. And so I think what we're talking about here is that we've, we've tried to work really hard at making sure that we don't do that because yep. this thing that we've built and the opportunity that's in front of us and how we're executing it, it's, it's pretty clear on how to do it. The really only risk is, is if we mess it up. Right. So let's just not do that. So let's stay aligned on the vision. And I think you have to be intentional. And I think the business is always an expression of us, but the you there's a breaking point where you realize the business is not you. It's the team. It's everything. Yeah. And so it to, really is to let yourself to to make it personal and to make it about you and stay in the weeds and and that is it, that is just the, the recipe oh. for complete. That's when the team is on edge all the time. They don't know when you're going to come in and make a change. It's like, yep. oh my God, what's he thinking today? Yep. Like that type of thing. And you that's why you got to stay out of that and let that thing run. Let the meetings get better. Let the people get better. Let them run. And your our job is to just guide the ship. Yep. It's like it's playing from up here. All right. Last one on partnership. The most pivotal conversation or decision the two of you have ever made together. From our friend Pomp out in Florida. That's a pretty tough one. I'll let you think about it. There, there's many conversations, not many, but there's there's a handful of conversations. And I, I probably would have to really, because I didn't think about this question ahead of time. But there's times throughout our partnership where there's been challenges, whether it be what the right next move is, something we're working on at that time and how to look at it. 
or how to handle it or when it comes to people and decisions. And then we go through things like COVID. There's been things like that where it has definitely put us in a position to have to have discussions that definitely you would consider pivotal. Now, I think we handled them and got through them in a way that is was going to be where we are today anyway. So I think they were more on the path of where we are and we handled them the right way. So I don't necessarily at the time would probably not have thought of them as pivotal, but I think they were definitely like points in the road that had we had we dug our heels in and said, nope, I believe this and yep. you believe this or that's we're not doing that. Yep. It definitely could have been there could have been breaking points. And I get I think that maybe what Pomp is asking is yeah. were there points where it could have been like go this go separate ways or a change of course of the business or something like that. And I think just reflecting on how we've handled things, which I don't think was like what we were thinking about doing, but every time, like looking back, you could probably say these were pivotal decisions. Mm -hmm. But if you also look at how we got to them, they really were never made in like a no, gut. No, we we seek counsel, or you know, one that just comes to mind to me, which was in the making, was the decision that I probably didn't need to be CEO anymore. But that didn't start by going. Hey, do you think you should be CEO anymore? It right. started with, hey, we need to hire a COO or right. we need to. It was an evolution. It was an evolution. And that led to you going and doing a lot of research mm -hmm. and then being like, I found this the best thing I've ever read on uh, whether we should hire a COO. We both read it together. Mm -hmm. Then we called the author who became our executive coach. Mm -hmm. Then we spent months and months and months talking to him. And then the facts started to present themselves. And we got a clear picture. And we got a clear picture. Yeah. Um, and in somebody, what I think that that's probably is one of the most pivotal ones, not because of the decision we made, but how we got there okay. and that we made the right decision, regardless of who and why, right? We made the right decision because what we were, what we actually did in that time is learn a lot about our business. We learned a lot about the people. Yep. We learned a lot about ourselves and we learned a lot about how to think about the scaling of a business yep. in general. And then we could use that to look at our company in a different way. And in that process, we it was obvious where our overlap was and where we were potentially going to create conflict in the future or have that divergence of futures, right? That it was very easy once we got that feedback. And going into it, I did not think I didn't go into it thinking, well, this is what I want the outcome. I didn't know what the outcome I didn't would be. Know either. And so what we did know, though, is that we needed to be set up for success. Yep. And I think at the time, we were both pretty committed to bringing on some version of a COO or something like that, right? And we'd already started to meet with people and all that. Yep. And it, it's not to say that you can't, you can't do that in a company or you can do that in a company and be, and be wrong. You might be right. That's up to somebody to discover. But what we learned is that what we said we wanted to build and what we were building and how we were doing it would not have aligned with that. Right. And that we would have actually just been doing that as a band-aid and creating major conflict in the company. And it would have been more stress on me, more work on me. And you would have gotten less of what you're trying to get from just an understanding or like an alignment or freedom yep. or all those. And so what I, I think from a pivotal standpoint, it was it, that probably was the biggest one, but not because we made the decision for you to do something and me to be CEO, but because of how we got a chance to look at the company for and sure. change the company's future based on the structure. Because sure. we reorganized every single team in the company based on those 
discussions. For sure. And then we organized the whole company. The whole company. But it started with should we hire a COO or not? <laughs> exactly. Um, so that that probably was the most an- another pivotal decision, I think. Again, these are in hindsight. I don't think we just knew like this is our moment. But we did a great job, and I know we're going to talk about it in a little bit, of going, here are things we want to do, but we have to get to scale first. And scale to us meant no property management. Like We're going to keep buying deals, look at the core of the company, Mm -hmm. and once that company is large enough to where other parts of the business can come on profitably with great teams and great incentives, we'll start getting into those things. Mm -hmm. In hindsight, and you talk to a lot of folks, like we had been in property management. We got out of it because it was a drag, didn't have the scale to really hire the folks Mm -hmm. and do it the way we wanted to do it. And so again, I think a pivotal decision that we made along the way that I think other companies don't make that don't scale as quickly is they start taking on too much early on Mm -hmm. because again, they look at other companies and go, well, they do that. Yep. But what they miss is like, yeah, they do that because they're at scale. Right. And that's something that's just always, I mean, we're having conversations right now about new tangential parts to our business that now make sense that didn't make sense three years ago. Yeah. And and I I think they're just going to keep coming, but that's, it goes back to how did we get there? That, that was a pivotal moment in thinking about the structure and it was all happening around the same time. So we've talked about that we have flywheels and things like, or we have a flywheel and how we use it. But I don't think we've talked about, especially in this context, how we got to that moment where we actually did that as well. And it was okay. actually at the same time that we were going through the discussions with Lex, but it was just before that I had just been challenging myself through that COO sort of thought process and thinking about the team and the structure. Instead of trying to go figure it out, I what I did in that moment was to go backwards and think about all the things that I'd already learned. Because sometimes you just forget, maybe you already know the answer. right? Or maybe you've already you already know where the information is to go learn the answer, right? And so what I did first was just go back to all the leadership and management training and all the stuff that I had learned. And the first thing I did was go back to my notes in Evernote from like 2011, 2012, where I had notes on like important things that I was learning as I was going through leadership training at at a previous life and in management training. And one of the first things I wrote at the top of that page was good to great and the flywheel by Jim Collins. I wrote those down at the top as this being like super impactful for me at the time. And and at the time I didn't think like, oh my God, this is the answer. I was just like, I need to go review that. And so I reread that book or I listened to the entire book that weekend. Literally, I went and walked on trail for hours (laughs) and listened to the whole book on like 1.5 speed because I'd already listened to it. But I I came back and I said, hey, we got to read this. You got to read this book. And uh at the time, we weren't even talking about the flywheel. I just so we got to read good to great. And I don't know if you remember, I made like a whole picture for the office because yeah. it had all the concepts of good to great on there, like all the companies. And what I what I remembered, I guess, as soon as I started reading it, I was like, oh, this must have been meant to be because everything I was trying to like figure out on how to build this great company, the reason why I kind of had the instinct of like, we got to do things to build a great company was because I had this sort of like previous knowledge that I just had not gone back and read. But as I started to listen to it, it started to come to me that what was separating the people that built companies that were great versus good, right? That's the whole concept of the book. And as soon as I got that clear in my mind that there were things that we could do, I realized that I've got to start doing more research of the structure of the company, not necessarily like, do we need a COO? It was more about 
what structure do you want to have and who's making the decisions and how do you align the team? It started to become more clear about where to focus my attention or our attention. And that's where I said, well, you know what, let's, before we even start that, let's figure out what's important to us as a company. And we had mission statements, we had purpose, we know what we're doing, but we never like identified clearly, like how does our business make money? How does it propel? I mean, we, we knew how it made money, but we didn't ever put it into context of if we do this, this will get better, this will get better, then this will get better. And if we do all that, we'll end up doing more of this, right? That's yeah. the flywheel. And once we kind of put that in place and said, we need to figure out this, what this is for us, I we immediately scheduled a retreat, an offsite. I don't, you, I'm yeah, sure I remember. you remember. Rough Creek. We just took four people. We sort of hand-selected people that that at least I thought would help us come to that conclusion. This wasn't like the traditional group of like managers and leaders in the company. I literally picked four people that I thought would be insightful enough to help determine exactly what this looked like. And we went and we spent hours literally designing a flywheel and thinking through it and scrapping it and starting over and and thinking about what the actual impact was. And that's how we landed on what it was. And that evolution is what set us up for all those other things, right? So that, to me, that pivotal moment of saying, we know what our business is. And then you combine that with the structure of working with somebody like Lex and saying, oh, now we have a framework of how to structure the company and we've got our flywheel. Those two things combined is what is, I mean, now looking back that those two things together are super pivotal. And it's easy to say now, but because, and we did it for a while, but most companies don't know they're like, they have right. a loosely held idea of how their company runs and what makes yeah. it better, but they have no idea what their flywheel is. Yeah. And I, think, and I think a lot of people, I tweet about it now all the time. I know it's like religion at Fort. Right. But I still get the sense and I laugh when they laugh. They kind of like, yeah, this fun wheel thing that y'all have. Well, a lot of people throw it on the wall or something like a, like a purpose statement or a mission statement. But if you identify the actual buckets and you say, if I'm not working on one of these to improve them, I'm wasting my time. Right. And if, I'm working on one of them and not the other, it's going to start to show up in those numbers, the facts, yep. right? If if one of mine says I'm going to uh, attract top tier talent, which one of them does, and we're, we have a hiring need and we can't get them, we have a problem, right? Yeah. It becomes so obvious in your company where you should focus your attention. So then you start talking about setting goals and things. It becomes easy because you just know what to do next. And uh, if you go back and read things like good to great, you realize that's what companies have been doing for a hundred years. They've, yep. they fit. It's not like this is a new concept. The key is people can now get better at it quicker because of where we are in the world with technology. All right. We'll talk about Fort for a little bit. Okay. This one's pretty easy. I'll answer the question, but it said the ownership structure is your management company, its own LLC. And how does that all break out? Is the GP all one company or is there a GP LLC set up for each different asset? <laughs> Fill in the gaps. Fort Capital is a limited partnership. Fort Capital employs people, owns furniture, and owns computers and servers and things of that nature. And is res- and is the asset manager. Of the it, yes. Day. So it manages the capital. And their job is to manage capital and assets and everything we do. But Fort Capital level. doesn't own the real estate. No. It manages the, a- it manages the investment. So it is an investment manager that is responsible for bringing in the capital, 
that goes into deals that are standalone individual deals and it manages that process and that capital. Correct. And then manages the properties. Yes. Through uh, a separate through a separate LLC. Okay. Or limited partner. Okay. So our company, based on our flywheel, right? So when when you talk about the different areas of our business that we're now able to expand on, when we build those businesses, we build them as standalone businesses that are under our umbrella company to say. They're technically housed in their own entity, but we do that so that that business can we know that we can run it as a profitable profitable business on its own. So every business is a standalone business, much like we operate our real estate. Yep. So Fort Capital is sort of a parent company. Yep. And then it has these sort of satellite companies that help operate all the aspects of the real estate. Yep. And then as it relates to individual deals, they sit in their own LLC. Yep. And then each LLC has a GP LLC attached to it. Correct. And, and we're within, the GP. Or we're yes. the GP. But it is a, if we buy 123 ABC Street LLC, there will be a GP called 123 ABC GP LLC. And then within that GP mm-hmm. is an entity that you and I have mm-hmm. that is fixed and it is our entity. And then the rest of the partners in that are critical team members from Fort Capital, right. might be our DAC. Uh, or somebody that brought us a deal. So those are people on our side of the deal. But the constant for you and I is we have an entity that is the same entity every time that is a limited partner of the general partner of that deal. Yeah. I know that's a lot. Yeah. But that is how it works. That's how the question was asked. Thanks for just uh, <laughs> thank the attorneys for those. Yeah, yeah. All it's really meant to do, though, it's not meant to actually be complicated. What it's meant to do is say there's a company for capital that that goes out and identifies and finds opportunities. Yeah. When those opportunities are found, there's a need to go raise capital and buy and own that real estate. That all happens in a separate entity, which is what you're talking about. But somehow we still need to be inside that entity as the person that goes and finds it, the sponsor. Yeah. And we do that by using what you just mentioned as an entity that we become a partner in that new entity. Yep. And we just repeat that process every time. So it is actually not complicated. It's just a repeatable process that we have a structure, an org chart that every deal we go into, there's these three components and it's pretty straightforward and it's pretty typical actually. It's not that uncommon. The further you get up the food chain though, that we've learned in terms of the size of deals, the capital, it is it becomes more rare. And actually we've what we've learned over time is there's a high value for what we're doing and how we do it. Yep. Were there points in your growth where you just weren't sure if you were right? And if so, how did you handle them? Uh, points in our career? Points in our company's growth. Oh, got it. Oh, there's, I, for sure. I know a couple. There's a ton. I'll, one, the first one that comes to mind is the pivot to industrial. Like, should we keep, is, is development the pathway forward or are we going to build a more sustainable company? And again, in hindsight, it looks like we were just brilliant and and smart and and picked the right thing. We were. But and I didn't pick up on it like you did. You kept coming in going, "Hey, these developments are going to run out. Like we got to put more developments on the board." I was looking at cash flow. You were looking at cash flow, <laughs> and I was not. But yeah. you were like, "These developments run out at this date." Yeah. And so something we either need more developments or something else, and I think that was when we were were like, "Well, what company do we want to buy?" Well, Devel- y- you were already yeah, but you were already looking at industrial at this point. For sure. You'd already brought the idea. For sure. But not in the sense of, at the time, 
probably it wasn't the to replace. It wasn't to replace. It was yeah. just to add on to the other thing. Right. We were in the add-on business. <laughs> just keep adding on ideas. But then you and I went on a retreat. Mm-hmm. I think this is right. My memory is a little bit foggy, but we basically left there and we're like, we made the decision uh, yeah. from this day forward. No more. No new deal that walks in here is it can only be industrial. Yep. And I don't care if the greatest uh, multifamily deal on the planet walks in tomorrow. We're not pursuing that anymore. Yep. And so I think you could look back and go like, I don't know if we were unsure. We're always maybe our default is confidence. So that's that's good. Yeah. But it was definitely like. And the funny thing is what we picked to go forward with was something we had never done before. Yeah. What I think it it can look like luck, but really there was some indicators at the time. And, Mm. you know, and we've talked about on podcasts why we chose industrial, what it all meant. The returns at the time were really good. And so then it was that convergence of Chris had saw an idea and opportunity. I saw a risk in the business from a cash flow standpoint. And then then we married those those two and was like. And it, that sort of happened organically. Even that part wasn't like, oh, this is the solution. But what it was is like, look how many of these are. This is a great investment idea. And now look at the cash flow. And then I could easily scale that into like how we grow a company on this. Because developers are lumpy. There's, it's just a lumpy revenue stream. Right. And then we knew that in a down market, development shrinks mm-hmm. um, sometimes for one, two, three years. And so you see these development companies get bloated and then they let everybody go and then they hire everybody back. And we were like, no, we want consistent cash flow, a consistent business, something that we can scale that was easier. We thought buying something was easier than developing something. Yeah. And then obviously the thesis, which we've talked about a ton, that that's something that we really believed in. Yeah. And, and was the question of what something that we actually made a bad decision? It was just, were there points in your growth where you just weren't sure if you were right? And if so, how'd you handle them? Oh, and yeah. so I just brought that up was like, we thought we'd be right, but that was a big decision. It was kind so, of a roll in the dice. I thought of, uh, I was thinking of another one at the time. That That is true. Uh, the one that you mentioned does fit that question. The one I was thinking about was more of a people discovery thing where we thought many times that we needed something. So it's kind of like when we needed the COO. Oh, yeah. But before that, there were many times where we thought the, and, and I was as convinced as you were that we needed a CFO or uh, a, a specific position. And it's not to say like that wouldn't have helped us or we didn't, need, but our company was not in a position to actually need this thing. We just weren't smart enough to know what they were going to do and how they were going to have an impact and all those things. And so we were probably thinking like, kind of like what you were talking about earlier on is thinking five years out and thinking we were already there and trying to fit that into our box. We needed to build the company and the organizational structure and get it to a place where the needs started to become obvious. What we were trying to do is force people into a business because you're like, we want to be big. We want to be a real estate company. So if you're going to do that, then you need one of these and you need one of these and you need one of these. And that's just not true. If Unless you're an, an owner, operator, entrepreneur that doesn't have the skill or the ability or the people around you that that are going to help you grow the business and you just have no other option, you're going to bring somebody in. But that's what you and I are. We're right. already those things. So to think that we need something else to come in and do this was we were just making that decision too early. I would finish that sentence and 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 you've taught me this and it's just taken lots of reps to realize it. It's what you said, like we were already doing those things. And what we kept doing was thinking someone else. Like, like I remember even talking about capital raising. Sometimes it was like, 
well, we can just outsource all that. Yeah. But then you're like, but you're already doing it all the time. Like, yeah. It, it, that's what ha- you you tend to think you can outsource so much mm-hmm. that you forget that you're already doing a lot of these things and you are the person. Now, at some point, it might make sense. Right. It, it will at some point. But when you're getting on a delegation role, you just think you can delegate it all. Right. And that's maybe where I'm going is like the, the realization of what's good to delegate today and what do you just maintain control of forever? Um, or at least until it absolutely is obvious that it's time to do that. For sure. Because it's holding you back. For sure. And then yeah. the idea that I certainly fell into this way more than you did, that all problems can be solved by hiring that next person, that that you don't even know what your problem is. So you think the problem is right. you just don't have that person. Well, and sometimes it is the answer, but most of the time it's you're trying to, or anybody is trying to solve the problem like the easiest way they can think. They think that there's, we always like to think there's a magical person that's going to come in and know it all. Like the Elon Musk of the world's going to step in and just like solve the world's problems. Right. And the truth is if you have a company and it's already doing something and you know where you're trying to fill a gap, you first have to have that clearly identified and understand before you even think about bringing somebody in because 90% of the time you bring that person in, it actually upsets the apple cart for a while because they don't know what's going on in your business. They got to get up to speed. You don't know if they're going to blend with the culture. It doesn't matter how much work you do ahead of time. There's still this like gap of them getting up to speed. And so if you're trying to make that decision to bring on something like a CFO and you're doing it because like we need it today, well, you're already making the wrong decision. Right. Because that's not how you bring on a CFO. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's what I'm saying is there were times where we're like, we need this. Yeah. Or we thought we did. And really you realize that they're not coming in to solve anything. And then the example of that is there were times and this is these were great companies, but we had we brought on fractional CFOs, which these these were great people. They had tons of skill. But what we realized is what we wanted in value, they were never going to be able to give us. So our expectation was wrong. And they, even though as talented and smart as they were, they were never going to be able to give us what we were trying to, especially you were trying to get in that moment. Mm -hmm. And so we were just, it was obvious looking back, but we were just trying to make that decision too quick. And so lesson learned there is if you're having to make really quick decisions on really big things, there's probably something else at play. Never make a quick decision on a person. There's yep. nothing worse than having to start over, let them go, them leave, and having to do it again. Yep. Uh, we've touched on this, kind of answered it in pieces, but what did you have to unlearn to scale where y'all are? I think we touched on most of that, yeah. but it is, uh, it, it's, we had to unlearn how to stop just running full speed and that goes through that whole Lex conversation, our consultant, and just going through that discovery. We had to learn to stop being these wild entrepreneurs that were just running full speed, buying the next deals, doing the next deals. Man, we need two of these. Let's hire two more asset managers. And just what you start to do is you start to repeat what you know in the world, the industry, how other people have done it. You're just like, well, we have this many assets and we're it's getting stressful and we have too many of this. So- it's what I just said about hiring quick people. Yeah. You just start hiring. And people think scaling a business is just do more and hire more people and it'll just get bigger. And what we had to learn to actually scale was say, well, you have to build a company to scale. And that's what we really learned from, from Lex from a standpoint of slow down, get your organizational, get your organization and structure, get all the entropy out of it, get it set up correctly. And then all that other growth is going to happen organically. Because you're already the entrepreneur. You're already going to go out and hustle. Just do this first step. Yep. And that actually required us 
to slow down a bit. And then we, I mean, it, it didn't take us that long, but we, in my mind, looking back, we probably slowed down for 10, 12 months yeah. where in my mind, it felt like we were just working on a lot of day-to-day people, training, structure, OKR setting, all that stuff, right? But looking back, it was priceless. Wouldn't change it. I think this is, and we've talked about this a lot, and there's an episode, uh, Johnny will plug it, that we talk about how to build a world-class operating uh, company and, and GP fees. I think it's episode 181, but Johnny will plug it. It's just, how do you think about fees in the operating company? And I got to really say, and and you kind of already touched on it. I give Jason immense credit for this because I think the standard in the industry is treat your operating company like this loosely fledgling thing that just makes enough money to cover overhead. And everything else is at the deal. And all the upside happens in the deal. Now, the funny part is, if you look at the best companies in our industry, not one of them is doing that. But as if you're a smaller business, it's like, it's just how most people think. And guess what? I thought that way too. That was just yeah. kind of how I was raised in the industry. Well, you think, think about the biggest real estate companies, asset managers, all of them, right? Why would they want all this or why would the small groups even think like them they're the deal people right they're technically they start out as the deal people yeah, just like deal we shop they're deal shops and so you, you, the the bigger companies the reason why they're successful is because they need people like that that just want to get the deals done put them together even own them for a while and ship them upstream or package them or however they do it but that that's part of it's just part of the cycle of real estate you get you start down here and if you ever want to get to that thing that bigger organization that's that good to great a lot of people say, no, we just want to do deals. It's the people that say, but if I'm going to build an organization, I have to think about it as a company and how are we going to make money? And if if I'm going to do that, then who's going to pay me? Why why should we make money? You know, So you got to build a great organization that provides value and actually makes a difference as opposed to, I just go out and find deals and this is the IRR we can make on this deal. It's this totally different mindset. And so you got to, in order to get to that point, you got to do the hard work, which is you got to build something that actually is giving the value that you, because you can't just be down here as a deal guy and go, we're going to start charging fees for what? Right. So I think sometimes when people think about fees, at least from an investment side, you think about them from a standpoint of like just cost yep. as opposed to well, what am I getting for the cost? Right. It's, you're, it's not a cost. You're getting a value. Do you know the value? And that's the way I like to think about it from, I'm not charged. I would never charge anything to any real estate deal that I didn't think was providing more value than it cost. It's not fair because I'm an investor in the deal and so are you. And our industry does the absolute worst. One, the word fee is just like a stigmatized word. Yeah. It's, you it's call a, it like an allocation. Word. People gloss over it. You call it a fee, whatever. The word fee just has a negative connotation, but it's what you just said. It's what services are you paying for? The industry does a terrible job of, or the companies do a terrible job of saying, this is what's behind the fee. So you hear, oh, this company charges 2% asset management fee. This company charges 2%. So you just assume all things equal. One company has a team of 20 proprietary software. I mean, just go down the list. And the other team is three or four people. Outsourcing everything. Outsourcing everything. Having calls every week and hoping everything works out. And so I won't go through the whole thing, but if you're an LP, is like, I would start challenging more your GPs to say, what's behind the fee? Because yeah. it, 
once we explain all these things to people, it's right. it's hard to not agree with it. Now, you might still say, I agree with all that. I, don't I still don't want to do that. And, and great, you're not for us. Right. And that's where, I, so going back to the original, my thought process on those bigger companies. So how do they exist? Yeah. How does BlackRock exist? Yeah. How does Goldman Sachs exist? How does JLL exist? Yeah. They charge lots of fees and people are happy to pay it. Why? Because over time they have a proven track record and performance and value that they've created, which is what we're doing. Some people are going to invest in BlackRock and Blackstone and JLL, and some people aren't. And that's fine. What we're angling for is the people that want the value. Somebody said it on a podcast the other day. It was on Invest Like the Best. I thought it was said really, really well. And it was by, it was a great episode. I'm pulling it up. It was by Jeremy Giffen. And he basically just said something to the degree of like, well, why do you pay fees and why do you pay promote to people? Well, one, it's like if you felt like you were better at it, you could just do it on your own. It's two, a free market. Yeah. Two, sometimes they'd say, well, oh, we'll just go buy a REIT. Okay. What a lot of people are doing is outsourcing confidence to someone else to make a decision that they themselves couldn't make. Right. And so they're willing to pay somebody else a promote. And I don't even want to get into pay them fees because the fees are actually paying for people. It's the cost to do it. It's not just like free money out of thin air. Right. Of course. But you're, you're outsourcing confidence to somebody else to make the decision. I just thought it was a really well kind of elegant way of putting it. It is a great way to put it. And, and you're just deciding what your risk profile is and where you're willing to place your bet. You can Anybody wants to go invest in a REIT, they can. That appears to be lower risk. But look at the blended average of REITs. Some perform, some don't. Who's managing them? And what are the fees that are being yeah. charged? At the end of the day, you can go dig into all these things. It's really people that want to do it without thinking about it and people that want to do it with thinking about it, yeah. right? And then there's people in that world that are really smart, sophisticated investors that understand exactly what they want to invest in. They understand exactly what fees they want to pay. They understand exactly the return they're looking for. And they try to match that up with what sponsors are out there in the market. And sometimes that is the guys or girls or people that charge the lowest fees. Yeah. And that's just not going to be us because we're providing something else. The same type of people that are willing to go invest in in a sophisticated confident or confident people that have a track record that's the investor and what i what i'm betting on and i think the the world would show that which is why there's so many massive companies and especially when it comes to real estate is because there's more investors that want that than the risk of the small deal shop that wants to go turn and burn and make a quick pop when the market's good everybody loves them we've been in that position people want to invest when there's hot deals out there we want to go find those deals but the way we think about the operations is we want to do it better than anybody. And that costs money. And that's how we create value. And that's how we protect the asset. And that's probably a great segue into why we often think of ourselves as operators, where yeah. a lot of people in this industry think of themselves as deal doers. Yeah, We and have built the company around operations, which, by the way, if you do them really well, lead to doing a lot of great deals and managing them really well and generating well, returns and I go back to, to the flywheel. Yeah. I used to, we, we talked a ton about this. Like, how do we present our company, right? What, yeah. what are we, what yeah. do we say we are, right? And we're an investment firm. We're a asset manager. We're a real estate, we, private equity. We're, we are all those, but, but at the end of the day, we are going and finding smart real estate investments that we are at, that we're raising capital for. And we're trying to execute a plan. If you just boil it down. So how, how are you going to do that? You, what is an investment? 
Now, investment isn't somebody handing you dollars and magically getting money. Something has to happen between handing those dollars and getting the money back. What is that? It's however you operate the asset. It's the leasing. It's the property management. It's the construction. It's the management. It's all those things. You only get that return back by the quality and the capability of the people in the middle. That's what we realize. If we're really going to say we're investment people, we're investment managers, well, are we either going to pay somebody else to do that or we're going to get so good at it that nobody can beat us? And that's what we're doing. So when we say we're the operator, we're the people that insure it. We are in control of ensuring that if we are going out and making an investment and and raising capital and saying, this is what we project returns to be, we're saying we're going to de-risk ourselves as much as possible by making sure we're in control of it and doing it better than anybody else. And so if you look at your company through that lens, you're like, yeah, we can call ourselves whatever. But at the end of the day, the way that we get the money back and we build a strong track record is being the best operator. And that always turns into more. Okay, this came up a lot. When will you get into additional property types or will you? I think it's kind of like the decision to get into property management. It's not as clean cut as that, but I think the market dictates the same way when we saw the opportunity to get into industrial. I think for Fort Capital, the way our structure is, our operating system, our our company is built to essentially be able to handle anything. That's not necessarily the intention to go buy anything, but if the market shifts and we see opportunity, I would say that it's most likely going to be something that is directly already connected to industrial by being a newer vintage, a bigger type, maybe different locations, but it will be an offset of that first before it's ever we're going into hotels. Right. I, I, I'm, we don't plan for that in our future at this moment. If if the company evolves and we continue to get to a place and then those opportunities present themselves, we will be ready. Right now, that is not a focus of how we're thinking about the next few years. Yep. It doesn't mean we're not well aware of it and we don't track everything because we do. We're tracking lots of opportunities that we think might be interesting in the future simply to learn. And we're always doing that. So And what I'm really trying to say is we're not going to project out 10 years and say, yes, in 10 years, we're going to be buying hotels or something. I don't know what it's going to be technically, because I I don't know what the real estate market is going to do. If you would have asked somebody five years ago that was starting a real estate firm that was going into office, what would they have told you? I'm going to own 50 million square feet of office by 2024. What would they tell you today? I'm I'm selling 50 million square feet of office. Right. So the point is the market dictates that we're going to make good investment decisions. That goes back to being the best operator. And, and what and, and what I would add, and you kind of touched on it, is you said we're building a company that can do anything. Right. In does I don't think you and I woke up one like as kids going, we're going to buy class fee. That's the dream. They're so beautiful. They're so beautiful. <laughs> they, they just make my soul tickle. But that's what we're doing now. We're building a company that we will know when it's time to go, yeah, we could get into hotels. We could start adding self-storage, but it won't be taking team members from the industrial team and, hey, now you're... It will be at a scale where we have the platform and the backbone of the company so solid that each team... You could build teams around certain theses that don't... That, that one, maybe share information in a good way, but they don't take resources from each other where where there's entropy or somebody shows up to the office that day going... I don't know if Jason's going to have me working on industrial today or self-storage yeah. today or retail today. And that goes back to the operating platform, the system in yep. our center of our flywheel being the best real, real estate operator. It doesn't say we're going to be the best industrial operator, right? 
Operator means, do you have the systems? Do you have the processes? Do you have the technology? Do you have the team structures in place that could scale to no, to no matter what real estate you're operating, can you be the best at it? That infrastructure is what we're talking about, right? We're talking about the infrastructure of a company is in place, which will allow us to do whatever. Yeah, I just have to say, I think it's one of the most exciting times to be at Fort right now. It's a year where not a lot of deals are getting done. The market's kind of slow. Million's not nothing. But what we're working on and just where the company is and, and where we're headed, the type of capital we're starting to talk to, you can just really get a sense that the launching pad for the next 10 years, which was a question of like, where will you be in 10 years? The things are getting in place to where I wholeheartedly believe Fort will be one of the most meaningful real estate companies in the country. And we're well on our way to being there. Yeah, I think that's definitely possible. I, I don't think nothing is ever a given, but I think if I had to bet on how, like, what are the odds that we become an amazing company that's more national, I think it's for sure going to happen. I mean, I would bet on that all day. What that looks like, I would never plan out 10 years because the real estate market changes. But what I, I do know is that the company will continue to get better, will be, continue to become world-class. And then, and the reason I know that is because going all the way back four years ago, this was a year after I went to Singularity, you had gone the year before. And for those who don't know, that's a future sort of technology driven thing out in Silicon Valley where you learn about the future. It sort of set us down this path of really committing to building technology into the company that was going to set us up to be able to scale and evolve and not lock us in or be beholden to how things work in the future. And that infrastructure that we put in place is just now, It's it's been working for great for many years, but now when you see things like AI that are really, really starting to gain traction um, and how much that's changed even in the last six months, the things that we put in place four years ago are set up to take advantage of this moment in time that a lot of companies are not going to be able to take advantage of, not at the speed that we're taking it. They will. All companies, I think at some point will take advantage of the things like AI but it's going to take them time. And I think that's going to be our advantage to sort of get out in front of a lot of things. And so we're doing things today that we probably thought wouldn't happen for the next couple of years, but because of the rapid development in AI that's happened over the last six months is really giving us an opportunity to, to take advantage of some of these things that are going to set us apart. And, so and, and maybe we don't have to go into the, the definitive ways in which we're starting to incorporate AI into every day, but maybe you could just spend a little bit of time how are you thinking about it? I would say from my perspective, and we this goes back to the beginning of partnership and how we talk and seed conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we went to Singularity University in 2018. They told us all this stuff was coming. It was like hard to imagine. And now it's like by the day, it's like, yep, that exactly happened the way it should. I would say from my perspective, looking at you, it's very much top of mind. It's captivating. There's so much, you kind of have to figure out where you're going to spend your time on it, but just, you don't even have to relate it to specific things at Ford. Just where's your head at with yeah. all of this? Well, I, I think it's a bit of a race in, in the grand sense, um, because there are companies that like what I was mentioning, I feel like we have a little bit of a head start, but there's companies that definitely have a head start because they've been planning for this and they're, because it is so confusing how many things are coming out, how many things change that those companies that are able to take advantage of it are going to be able to separate from the general 
population of companies and people that are not able to get up to speed. There will be a definite gap that is formed. And what my goal is, is to make sure that Ford Capital is on the other side of that gap and not just on the other side of it, but leading it in terms of what we're doing. And that's where I think we're a little bit have a, a unique take on it is because there's probably not a lot of class B industrial real estate operators with a goal to be the best real estate operator in the world and have a technology built that is set up to take advantage of AI the way that ours is. And if you combine all those things, even if there's dozens of them, that's not that many when you look at the size of the world or even the United States. And so I look at it as uh, an opportunity to take advantage of what's happening today and build on it. But in terms of the technical aspect of it, what I see that is the real advantage, and this would be more of my take, people can go do research. I won't get into the details of how we're going to use it exactly, because I think what we're going to do with it is very unique and, and very proprietary. And I think there's going to be a ton of value there. But what I would say is there's a lot of hype around things like chat GPT right now and all the plugins and things that you can use with it. It's great. But our vision of that is to have our own, and that's what most companies will have. And so what I would say is our vision is to have our own, I don't like to use the term chat GPT, but a large language model, because it is different than that, that we hyper-tune, that our business is able to communicate with, that specifically knows everything about our business and our industry and what we do. That hyper-tuning and, fine, and uh, hyper-focus and in, in what you're doing gives you an advantage as opposed to just people that are going to use the general language models, which is open AI. They're going to continue to get smarter. They're going to provide a ton of value. There's going to be lots of cool things you can do with it. And it's going to automate tons of stuff that won't be as powerful as as smart as we get and how fast we can move making better decisions. Even if it's just at a team level, right? Process level, it won't be as impactful as what we'll be able to do internally with ours. And so I think that's where I really see it going over the next really six months. I mean, this is happening so fast, but it's a game changer for not just what we're doing, but for society, the people that take advantage of it, which I'm super grateful that we've taken the leap to spend money on things that we we started doing years ago, because you you can kind of miss this moment if you're not careful, right? And I don't mean peop- everybody's going to have to get up to speed with AI, but a lot of people are going to miss the moment of really adopting it and taking advantage of it to where no matter what happens, they're sort of always going to be propelled forward ahead of everybody else because they just got a head start. Right. And if you think about AI and how it works, I mean, what happens when when AI gets smarter? Every time somebody asks a question, every time it, it intelligence gets, it's continuing to grow, right? Well, if you're on the front edge of that and your information is at the front edge of that and your decision-making is at the front edge of that, if you're coming in at any point down here and it's new to you, you're having to play catch up. Or if you're having to train your data or train your model, all that stuff is a gap that is going to be impossible to catch up because by the time you get your information into a system and you're asking good questions, the person that did it a year ago, their AI is already a thousand times smarter than yours. And so that's a kind of a dumbed down version of what it is, but we are attempting to make sure that our version of what we're doing in our company being the best real estate operator in the world builds into our operating system an AI that allows our system to be smarter than anyone else's and hopefully stay at the front edge of that. If you had to give one example, Mm -hmm. we're a real estate company. Everybody's probably thinking like, oh, you're going to use it to underwrite deals or you're going to use it to search Google Earth to find properties faster. But every time I talk to you, you're like, 
bah, that's elementary school, like <laughs> not even close. If you had to give one thought as to how we might use it, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's so many. This is the thing is. Uh, I just want one. I know. But here's the thing. So on the operating side stuff, you really have to have a business that you understand and you can then envision how it would affect your operating. So the way we're going to use it, I think is totally unique. But if you just take some concepts of like, what's one aspect of Fort Capital, right? That That is, we've always focused on from the beginning, right? What's something we focused on from the very beginning that you've always been passionate about? It's marketing. Look what we're doing right now, yep. right? Marketing especially in a company like Fort Capital, has forever changed. Even though it's going to take time to get some of these things implemented, but it has forever changed. Meaning there's no going back to the way it used to be done. And over the next year, it's going to continue to evolve where you won't even recognize the past of how you market. And so if we take things like uh, LinkedIn post, right? Think about most small real estate companies. They probably have a marketing person, which we do, and you'll still have that. But what you won't have to have is someone that's trying to create and come up with content. So if if you in the past had needed somebody that really understood everything that's going on in the business and knows how to think about the business and then is responsible for coming up with good, clever content, and then they have to package it together and then they post it, you'll be able to do that and you technically can do it right now and create hundreds of those posts in minutes, minutes. And you go, well, where's the content come from? The content is already there. We're talking right now. This is all content. All the stuff we publish, all the OMs we write, all the stuff we already document. We already on Slack, team anniversary or people anniversaries, uh, promotions, all that stuff is already tracked. So when you connect in an AI, it's gathering that data for you. You just say, what are, what are, uh, give me 10 great things. Or every time there's an anniversary, create a LinkedIn post. Here's a template. You, oh, don't even come up with the template. It'll come up with the template. So things like that will become so automated that the marketing piece of it, the outreach piece of it will just be a given. And people will get so good at it, right? That it will just, it, it will become the norm. But if you think about the efficiency that that creates, right? How much time are we spending on like, oh man, we need to build our brand or do that, that will start to be built into sort of how the business runs, not somebody having to think about it, yep. right? doesn't mean there's not somebody there overseeing it and watching it. And this is a, a key point that I would say, this is more advice to myself also, just as a reminder, but anybody that hasn't thought about it this way, AI, one, if you're not on board, I would highly recommend you get on board <laughs> very quickly. It, if there's people, even if you're, a manager or responsible for people and you're worried that that well but i don't want to i'm not going to use ai to replace people you're right you shouldn't think about ai replacing anyone that is not the goal if it ever got to that point in the future then you should be happy because that means everybody's got a really relaxed life if in the meantime and i'm saying for the next decade the way that we should look at ai is it's not replacing people but the people that learn to use ai will replace people that don't and so my, that's why my advice is if you're not on board, I would get on board because if you're a person, a manager, an owner, an operator, a CEO, it, I don't care what position you're in. If you aren't on board at some point, somebody will come along very quickly that can do your job with the support of AI that appears to be 1000 times better than you. And that will become really valuable. And so if you're a person that's not using it, how you will appear to the people that do or how you will appear to the rest of a company will be 
like somebody that's their first day at work. And that'll happen quicker than we realize in pretty much every position. And I can give some just basic examples. I won't go into the details, but there's several people on the team that I have been working directly with for months on how we can use some certain things. And we've been using them now for months. But what I did is I took that time to really try to get them excited about it, but also educate them and show them some tricks that I learned. And we share those now. And within a very short period of time, things that we used to do one way, we would never do again, ever without the use of AI. We would never even try to compute in our brain or come up with a thought about how to start this process or a thing that there's several things that we do now without the use of the AI first, because there's no way that I can combine the different concepts and consider every single thing of those three concepts at one time, the way the AI is. So if we start that way, the clarity that it gives me on thinking about all three of those concepts at the same time about that question is mind blowing because now then I can form a really good opinion and then I can tweak and edit it and I can ask better questions. And so that, and I'm saying that because there's people now, there's at least three people in the company that would never, ever, ever not use it for certain things already. And we're just talking about months. If you fast forward a year, there is most of the things in the company people will not not use AI for. They'll use it because they'll think, why would I not? And so I would equate it to if if you're sitting at dinner tonight and you're chatting with your friends or family and somebody says, hey, let's go to the movies. Would you ever all just sit there and say, hey, who wants to go out to the newspaper machine and try to buy? And do those even exist? No. Well, does somebody just want to guess what time we're going to go to the movies? No. What what do you do? Everybody picks up their phone and they Google, right? That is what AI is on a infinite scale. That's what I'm talking about, like work. The same way you would never not use your phone to Google what to go to the movie. There's things in the office and in work and life that you will never not use AI again because there's no reason why you wouldn't. It increases your brain capacity beyond belief. And so I would just overemphasize that if you haven't gotten into it yet, start with ChatGPT, watch as many YouTube videos as you can, and just pay attention because it's coming and it's a great thing. And I think it's going to give everyone a ton of opportunity. Maybe this is a premature question, but even as as you run the company day to day, and this is starting to make its way into the company fast, what is like an indicator or metric or something that you're like, this is su- this is um, helping the company succeed. We're becoming more successful. Is it because yeah, it already is? We already have those. That's it, how crazy. That's how fast. So, it what is. would be like one thing that you know it's working? So, I mean, there's there's we're, so the numbers that we use are already influenced by AI. Meaning the the way we evaluate numbers. Yeah. So this is another good example. This doesn't give away any sort of secrets of how we're going to be using it. But crunching data numbers is no longer. It, it will no longer be a thing. Like you just don't have to do it. So here's an example. We, we were calculating leasing sort of data to try to set new goals on leasing velocity, renewal probabilities, right? So we were just, we just did a OM release podcast right before this, that we're pushing out a deal. And we talk about renewal probabilities that everybody uses in underwriting. Well, in the past, we can go back and look at data and we can say, well, how many leases have we renewed and what type of tenants was it? And 
you know, what's the probability of a tenant renewing, whether they're on a gross lease or a triple net lease? And we can ask all those questions and we can try to fine tune that data. And it takes analysts lots of work and they dig in and they try to do it. I can simply now, we have this capability already, drop in the leasing data, all of our tenants. We already have all of our leases abstract, abstracted, which means they're digitally transformed into our system and all the key data points are already in our data. This is what I go back to. We've been doing this for years. But now because that data is so clean in our system, I can simply type the question. What I don't even have to say, what is the probability of renewals? I can ask AI, how, what are the things to consider across our entire leasing portfolio and what metrics should I pay attention to? Broad, like that. And it will give me 10 key points that are almost always better than if I just said, I want to know renewal probability. Those data points, the AI can see that I might not even consider. You can always go back and say, okay, and also give me renewal probability. And by the way, it almost always will give you what you're thinking about already. Uh But it also crunches the number. And it says, this is what it is. And then I say, well, if I want to increase my occupancy by 10% in the next quarter, what do I need to do? Not only will it say, this is how many you need to lease. It'll say these properties are the ones that have the most opportunity based on vacancy, based on tenant type, based on, and just keep going. And I could, I could do this sort of exercise right here that we're doing for hours. That's what it's capable of. And so that's already showing up and we're just testing. We're just playing around with it right now. But the things that the structure that we're building in is such that it can ingest the data that we've already found a way to start tracking for years now. And so that we can communicate with our data, with AI in a seamless way and have infinite resources of answers immediately. And so um, it's going to be a game changer across every part and measuring it will not be the problem because the AI will measure it. That's how it's going to show up. That is a perfect place to end. We're doing an episode in probably six months because you kept saying in six months. All, so we'll probably do an AI episode in six months. Um, Might need to be like three months. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I think uh, this was a cool conversation. We just got, we got to cover some stuff we don't usually get to go over. Again, thank you for being number one and number 300. Thanks for And um, yeah, it was fun. All right. Congratulations on 300 again. Thank you. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. <laughs>